0: i From the front
1: and top of to um, mm, to the mm, mm, Oh, it's so tall. Hey, well. hey, yes. yes. hey, 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 oh, hey, it's hey, it's hey, right. hey, hey, hey. hey.
0: man who is a jack of all trades they're a bike courier a jeweler <laughs> spiritual sage uh also kind of an academic superstar as well um has written some really interesting stuff on sexuality uh, gender stuff like that so we're gonna talk about we're gonna have some spicy discourse
2: um how's everyone doing today how's everyone's quarantine going Um, today my quarantine feels great. I've been going through a weird, like, revelation week of thinking about what it is I fall in love with on, like, a day-to-day basis and, like, what it is I'm searching for and whether or not that's an appropriate thing to look for in a human being and, I don't know, and today I'm feeling... (laughs) Very thankful to be alive. I'm sitting in the sunshine talking to a really great old friend. I'm feeling lucky and good. Aww. How are you,
1: Ken? Good. Uh, I didn't sleep a lot and I can't quit smoking, but good to be here.
0: Aww. <laughs> if any of our listeners have tips on, on quitting smoking, uh, hit us up. I was, um, I was reading, apparently, that if you start smoking um, in your like teen years, you're like more likely to develop cancer. But that's also only if you're also very stressed, as well. And and if you aren't stressed, then you actually don't have a high chance of developing cancer, even if you smoke a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, which explains people like Bertrand Russell, who like Russell smoked a ton and he lived to be so old and he has these videos of him being like I've smoked a pipe for 90 years and whatever um and and so Ken basically you can continue as long as you find ways to not be stressed
1: (laughs) oh that's funny I wonder if if how where my life is on the stress thing it's hard to say you know it's hard to objectively quantify that
0: yeah, and apparently what I was reading as well is a lot of people who had stressful upbringings tend to, like, underplay the degree of which it was stressful Um <laughs> because people with, like, high-stress lives, uh especially when they're younger, tend to...
1: Uh, Wait, am I not on video? What the fuck? Okay. Yeah, you're not. Oh, I, hey, thought, hey.
0: I thought that you were just, like... That was stressful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, yeah
0: um yeah so that's a hot tip to the uh listeners just stop being so fucking stressed and maybe you won't get sick just um i woke up this morning with like a huge headache and sore throat and i was like you hitting the bottle again Mm -hmm. and like (laughs) i got like major twitter stormed last night for the dumbest thing and uh Gary like had to call me to be like, okay, just stop fighting with these people, and they just kept like getting mad and like replying to me in like botched AAVE, being like, y'all don't understand. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. wait, what's AAVE? Like AAVE, like African American Vernacular. Okay. And so they're being like, y'all don't. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, guys, like it's literally. I, I have a theory that like the less serious I tweet. The more mad people get and like the more of a joke it is the more mad people get um but like god bless to, uh... what does
2: that say about your humor Mila I know
0: I know I blame <laughs> alternative comedy I think that's what I always uh, we always joke oh, alternative comedy ruined my life but you know that's that's definitely a thing um but anyway we're here to talk with Caroline, not about my uh, online uh, escapades, <laughs> but basically Though my boyfriend. I do, I do
2: feel that that's part of us. Like that's true. your whole, um, your whole warrior aesthetic. Like we, we kind of birthed that at the same time. I feel like mm-hmm. we were going through warrior times the same, same that's, moment.
0: That's very um, true. That is very true. I know. very
2: much see you as a comrade. And, like, when you're when you're going off on the internet, I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep yeah, up on this.
1: So. <laughs> make yeah. sure that,
2: yeah, I got to make sure the comrade's okay.
1: What time did this happen?
0: Um, at, like, <laughs> 11, I want to say.
1: Wow. Um, it's around the clock for you.
0: <laughs> I know. And honestly, though, it's always stuff I don't intend to get, like, weird and then people still get mad at them. <laughs> then I get annoyed at how irrational people are like I'm like why are you mad at this this is so stupid the left is in such a terrible place and like you, you that- should
1: just say something about how you're gonna enjoy some chai today
0: oh my See god yeah I think I will I will kind of make some chai. someone was like in Arabic it's it's not chai it's shy so like you are culturally appropriating or whatever and I was like yeah we still spell it like ch they're like no there's no ch in Arabic and I'm like there's literally Lebanese towns that are transliterated into English with a ch like shut up you dumb bitch um I can't but and then I was like I can't believe that I'm arguing about this like this is insane the fact that this is what people uh get concerned about just shows how terrible of a place we're in
2: right now you're part of it you're you're in the same conversation my friend i know that person
1: i know caroline do you like are you on twitter
2: i actually don't have um a twitter (laughs) um i i feel like i was very vocal about my ideas for a long time And then I realized it just made me sound like an asshole um, because grandiosity and, like, an ego problem just, like, doesn't look cute online. Um, So I kind of backed away from that type of, like, live thought streaming. Um, I guess now what I'm more into in terms of, like, internet content is um, curated thoughts that aren't, like, I'm not trying to express thoughts that connect necessarily to an everyday material context. Um, I think I'm more trying to explore like myself in that space. Interesting. Um, But so it's not really about my opinion necessarily, you know, like it's not it's not what I'm, it's not what my thoughts are about the everyday, but it's more how I'm experiencing that every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also I, just have such a complicated relationship with like sharing thoughts online. I think that um, so much virtue signaling happens and it's just so gross and <clears throat> it's hard to navigate when you have like a lot of people who follow you because I think part of the reason why one shares is to connect with people or in some way find camaraderie or um, perhaps find a solution to some type of line of thought. Um, and to be able to do that authentically, it needs to be with people who kind of can understand your message. But when there's so many people, you're really not able to streamline the message in a way that can be understood easily or, I mean, I guess easy isn't even the, It's I'm not looking for easy, you know, um, but I'm looking for digestible, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. um, and I don't, I don't know if people can digest what you mean when you post something or share something. Or though I do see, of course, the value in um, conversation and getting people to know and to see and be aware. Anyway, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Communicate feelings. Yeah, for sure, it's a mixed bag because like I've found both good and bad. I've like <clears throat> found people that I've been able to connect with and like organize certain uh, sort of initiatives with um and that's been really helpful I think especially with the anti-war movement and I've mentioned this before but the anti-war movement is so uh starved right now like we don't have a lot of people in one place you have to kind of and it's also like when you talk about these wars that are happening it's it's so it's not confined to like one country supporting it like it's not just Canada that's sanctioning Iran it's the Mm -hmm. U.S. and so you have to build these kinds of connections uh basically all over the world and that's what I've found these platforms to be useful for but then there's also a ton of garbage that comes with it as well where you just have people being like how dare you say chai blah blah
2: blah blah I'm like okay so I think there's a big difference with what you're describing though like you're talking about actually using it for organizing and finding people to talk to at this exact moment in my life i don't find myself mass organizing i find Mm -hmm. myself more locally organizing like Mm -hmm. and um, that's doing things in my direct community
0: yeah so that's actually one other thing i was gonna ask you about is is so you recently organized a rent strike in montreal
2: yes i did
0: that is incredible (laughs) Great work! I I was really impressed. I read the document, and I you know even my mom right now she's I showed her your letter templates, and I was like maybe this could help you out a little bit um, to communicate with your landlord with stuff like that. So how is that going? Yeah. How's how is the rent strike going in Montreal?
2: Well, I think that of course um, everybody is settling into the idea that this is now like a very long haul. Um, mm-hmm. Like as the dates get pushed back and back and back, and you know, the whole reopening of the economy. I don't think anybody that I talk to is thinking of this as like, oh, everything's back to normal finally. Like, I think most people are very honest about, okay, the economy is reopening. We have to expect a second wave, like in the fall. Like, I think people are really kind of making space for that. So the rent strike conversation gets more complicated there. Um, Kind of now asking, like, how long are we asking our landlords not to um, collect rent and you know that's the question um, that I think people have to kind of negotiate with themselves because everybody's landlord situation is very different like some mm-hmm. people's landlord is the older couple who lives upstairs um, some people's landlord is some jackass who lives in a mansion and has 13 buildings with 15 units each that, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just such a different, there's so much difference in the conversation. And I think it's also important to highlight how um, owning land is like such a extreme class privilege in this exact moment. And like, I'm not gonna say that these people who own land are like, you know, really struggling. <laughs> I'm just not gonna say that ever. Um, <laughs> because that's an asset, you have to set. Yeah, our and guest yeah, so last week kind a, of discussed that. I didn't get a chance to hear it, but um maybe if there's some cross um cross information you can interject and allow your viewers to continue yeah. that conversation. Well,
0: well basically like he was arguing that you know if you are taking up uh resources from the commons say and preventing people from accessing the resources they need to survive so say doing something like buying up a ton of land especially in Montreal now you have these major companies i remember one of my buildings got bought up by like a major company that wasn't even from Montreal and they bought up all these buildings and then jacked yeah.
2: them up.
0: um and so they're standing in between uh you know what people need to survive right and so it's our, mm-hmm. our last guest was kind of arguing like you know no one has the right to to do that you have to actually make the case for that right but we just assume that they have that right off the bat
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so yeah I thought that was very interesting um, but yeah so so you've been uh, have you been organizing mostly in your neighborhood or is this like a all across Montreal mm-hmm. kind of thing?
2: Well, so the. The cross-Montreal aspect of it is that there are a lot of people who are doing individual, uh, not individual, <laughs> individual organizing um, in their own neighborhoods. Like, for example, in neighborhood, my building is on a block of three buildings. So, like, my conversation with my neighbors doesn't just include people in my building. It also includes the people, the buildings that are connected to mine, you know, because we're in one block. And so I'm really mostly talking with these people, uh, keeping up with my neighbors here. And then what I end up talking to with uh, other organizers, what I end up talking about with other organizers is like, what does action look like going forward? Are there legal um, resources that people can access? How do we stay on information that kind of, you know, we don't, like, there really isn't any certainty in any of, oh, there's, there's just uncertainty, um, point blank. Uh, so, yeah i 'm um, not going to talk about specific specifics of like what 's going on in my building because there's mm-hmm. a lot of complicated dynamics, um, but that 's kind of how it stands. I know a lot of people in Montreal, including organizers who are like doing individual block kind of work, um, are frustrated that um, central organizing is kind of hard to manifest right now like there's a lot of people who are really vocal about being you don 't have a an organized structure here like what about support like normal stuff and like there's a lot of people willing to be like why aren't you organizing Where are you? but it's you know it's a job um that i think people underestimate and to be to be coordinating on that kind of scale is really exhausting and i really do think that people are trying their best i think the movement has slowed down a lot um thing's kind of become more and more a matter of Waiting out to see what the real trajectory is because yes, I think organizing right now is just really <laughs> hard because of the, the trajectory idea you know like where does it go? what's the positive narrative? Um, how do we move forward? but people don't know what that looks like people don't know how to move forward um, and funding conversation a lot too um a lot of people feel satisfied in this moment because they have ERB and so they're paying their rent because they can or They're helping others pay their rent in that way. But when that dries up, what happens to all this community funding that's being re-resourced? Where where do we get that from now? You know, and okay, people go back to work, but then we're allowing the problem to keep persisting and we're allowing the ruling class to keep deciding whose health is worth preserving and whose isn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all rather bleak. Um, yeah,
0: it's it is it's a, it's a bleak <laughs> way to start an episode, but, but you know. Yeah, no, I mean that... Unless I'm
2: saying things that everybody already knows. I'm sorry if I'm just bringing the mood down.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. The, these are, the, I think these are very important things to, to be thinking about right now. Um, especially, you know, I think what this crisis is showing is that a lot of the ways that we have socially organized ourselves is not a sustainable way of doing it. If we're just gonna fall apart like this in a crisis, we're obviously very unprepared for it, and that's yeah. So well, that's now. what I
2: think is also unique about this moment. Um, mm-hmm. Although we are unprepared for it, uh, there has been some type of response to try to alleviate the symptoms of like how this affects people, um, and so now we know that there is some type of mobilization that can be ha- like be had. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that this isn't the only time that this is going to happen. Like with the state of medicine, pharmaceuticals, like we expect antibiotics to work less and less. We expect viruses to become more and more um, adaptable um, or adaptive. Um, we expect you know more of these moments. So we are unprepared right now, obviously. But this is a you know a very important. I think, turning point where we need to ask ourselves, okay, what went wrong this time? And if we assume that this is the smallest scale that it could have happened on, you know what I mean? Like, we need to always assume this is the smallest scale, you know? Of course, it feels gigantic, but also numbers-wise, like, in terms of how many people are infected, I think we do see a lot of sensationalization. Of course, we see a lot of um, very honest reporting, and we see a lot of people talking about the ways that this hits certain communities a lot harder than others so these numbers really reflect very particular situations i think mostly in urban centers um but these numbers in comparison to how many people die of flu in a given year aren't so different it's just a whole new thing you know and so that's what makes it different that this is death occurring from an entirely new um so like it's happening for an entirely new reason um Mm -hmm. but this is going to keep happening um and so we need to figure out what to do next time. Yeah. And perhaps people were scared enough, people were affected enough to want to do that. Maybe. Um, but people are also incredibly individualistic. <clears throat> and I think if they're, you know, given the choice to take care of a very small nuclear situation, and I'm not just talking about your mother, father, whatever, like you choose your, your situation, but um, if they have the, the ability to just do that, I think... That would be the easiest like kind of um in terms of your mental health like (laughs) tapping into suffering on such a massive scale is such hard work um and there's people who are going to have to do it by necessity and that's just the truth of this um people who are strong enough need to sign up people who think that they have the ability but don't know how need to start asking questions um And people really need to be considerate of each other's energy levels because this is a long haul, a long game.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I think we are underestimating also, like, how this is a mental health crisis as well as kind of a physical one um i know at my work we've been doing a lot of mental health initiatives for isolated youth and that's kind of been i mean like isolation is kind of an underestimated problem in this in this pandemic as well you have some people who are just alone all the time, especially uh, youth who come from families who are, say, like, more neglectful. And so you end up having, like, I feel like we've put a lot of uh, resources towards, like, conventional health care, but not as much towards, say, mental health initiatives. But I also, I don't know what that would look like even either. So... I don't know. I don't know how people are staying mentally healthy during this time.
1: Wait, so what do you do for your at-risk youth?
0: At work? Yeah. So a lot of them come from, um, say, like low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, low income backgrounds. So a lot of them don't have technology to stay in touch with anyone. Um, And we pair them with mentors for instance. Another thing is like a lot of kids can't get their schoolwork done because they can't attend class online because they don't have the technology. We like, it's crazy. We kind of overestimate or we take for granted just having a laptop or having a phone. And so one of the things we've been doing is we made a a partnership and we got them to give free uh, smartphones to these kids so that they can stay in touch with their mentors and, uh, you know, not feel so alone. And also they can, you know, use online. Uh, Mm -hmm. These all have data plans so they can, uh, you know, attend virtual uh, activities, events, classes, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, So that's like, that's one of the things we're trying to do because I think it really negatively impacts you especially when you're young but even now it's like if you're living alone now um I I feel like that's very difficult to to get through um I recently I read this article recently by Amber Frost and Damage Magazine and it was about like she was saying how not only do people want you to like comply with these regulations which is fine but then you also have to like act like you know you're okay with it like you can't, you have to act like, you know, it's all going to be okay and like put on a sort of happy face as though, like you can't act like, even if you express discontent at your situation without saying, like you can be like, I'm following the rules, but I hate this. And yeah. people are going to like come at you and be like, you are so ungrateful. Uh, the healthcare workers are risking their lives right now and stuff like that. And she's saying, you know, we have to wear two masks. Essentially we wear, the mask we wear outside and we wear this mask of like content to cover our discontent <laughs> with the situation. Yeah. I thought that was very insightful. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's good. No. Um, we can move on to something more fun. So, <laughs> so Caroline, Ken and I, as, as I said before, we were discussing BDSM on another, uh, another episode and we the were like premium episode uh, yeah we discussed it on the premium and we were both like well premium. i'm not qualified to really talk about this um, i'm not
1: qualified to talk about anything we talk about on this podcast
0: yeah neither am i i'm a fucking idiot um <laughs> but <laughs> um and, and anyway so caroline you've written some really interesting things about BDSM. <laughs> Um, and I feel like a lot of what I know about it comes from you. And, um, I think it is, it is something that's kind of entering the culture a little bit more and, uh, there's both sort of, uh, an enthusiasm for it. And there's also some misconceptions about it. I was wondering if you want to speak to some of your writings or work on the issue.
2: Sure. Um, well, I would love to talk about the whole, like, conflicted about it, enthusiastic about it mm-hmm. um, kind of dichotomy that people often find themselves caught in. You know, like, people want to hate it and want to say, like, oh, it's so disgusting, blah, blah, but they're fascinated. They, they can't look away. It's like, oh, crash. and you ask yourself, why? Why is it that they feel this need to actively speak against it? Can't look away, you know, speak to. Um, I think the practice itself is so fascinating. Um, I think you learn so much while engaging, while even just having to kind of process it on your own. Like, um, I think if you want to do this in a health, or if you want to engage in a healthy way, you really do need to understand that this is an emotional thing like essentially what we're dealing in is like um it's a it's a game it reflects a certain aspect of our life that we feel is gamey um it kind of like blows that that one kind of uh emotion into a whole scene and lets you sit inside of it and find pleasure in very unexpected places like you hear people talk about the subzone um, of just kind of sublime, sometimes dissociation, but also sometimes incredible groundedness. Um, people experience it in so many different ways, but this ultimate release, this ability to find um, pleasure in trust and abandonment, kind of. So it's you know, it, there's there's a lot going on there, and I think I think it's complicated because people have a lot of complicated feelings about these dynamics in their everyday life and they don't know how to feel about it and I mean I know it is especially a very complicated thing to talk about um sometimes in feminist spaces you know like people who go to these um spaces to find safety from a certain type of violence and then see people talking about what they see as this violence that's hard Like it's a difficult conversation um so <laughs> I don't know if I even no, answered the first thing I was no, thinking 20. about but just how it's
0: I I think that is something that I have always thought about is especially uh, in activist spaces. um, There is definitely like either. I think, like I said, there's a very like strong enthusiasm for it, or there's some reservations. And I think a lot of them come in the form of, you know, say people uh, associate it with a kind of, violence that they've experienced that they uh don't feel comfortable with at all um but then at the same well, p- and
2: I, I think too in these spaces in those spaces where people like want to accept it too like there's not a whole other thing in these activist spaces where people are like oh are you rad enough like can you get down for it like can you can you go that far yeah. you know so like I think that's a whole other like a whole other element that like people who Um, haven't engaged with their, you know, internal monologue really need to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's definitely true. There's kind of like, I don't know, it sounds almost like Foucauldian, like this confessional culture. Where we like need to like be mm-hmm. very open about like the kinds of like sexual stuff that we do, and it's a, a display of, of like radicalness or like something like that. Um, <laughs> and and that's always interesting. I mean, I see that. I, I I living in Montreal, I remember seeing that kind of thing a lot. Here, I feel like it's not as 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 much. But maybe I don't know, Ken. I don't know how much you've seen it's yeah it's just like radical
1: security like the the best way to have a position of power is almost to be like i've taken it like this far and if you're uncomfortable at all that means you have serious issues is like the subtext i kind of pick up (laughs) on. funny Mm
2: -hmm. but Yeah. yeah
1: it's funny to hear that articulated
0: i i was uh googling like common like when we were having our discussion on Wednesday I was googling some stuff about BDSM my google search history probably looks terrible Um, but but it was I I was curious and one of the first results that came up was what does the bible say about BDSM and I I thought oh my god this is perfect for Caroline um, so <laughs> according to this article, uh the Bible thinks that if you are into to being dominated or dominating, you have a deep desire for God.
1: Um, <laughs> I see that I can see it, but where where did you read this?
0: um it's on gotquestions.org. dot org. <laughs> Um,
1: okay
0: and and it's uh i mean it says like the good principle like mutual consent is a good thing and in corinthians apparently that's like gives it it says okay it's good if like there's mutual consent and god gives married couples freedom in regards to what takes place (laughs) in the marriage bed could this freedom include black leather Sorry. costumes, nonviolent bondage, oh and role-playing? There's nothing in the Bible that, that violence violence. restricts such activities. <laughs> and then it says there are some aspects in BDSM that a Christian should not do. So it <clears> says <throat> receiving sexual pleasure through the giving or receiving of pain is not in agreement to what the Bible says about sex sex is to be an expression of love affection passion gentleness selfless selflessness and commitment so so i think that is uh, also one of the things that people who practice bdsm kind of talk about is, is that do you find that there's a, a misconception about about that that it's like not an act of like what is it of passion affection <clears throat> love selflessness and commitment
2: well i think that that's incredibly unfair um Mm -hmm. to say that that wouldn't exist in a a real relationship between two people who practice this um because a huge like basically the the foundation of this kind of work is trust and commitment Mm -hmm. like being able to know that this person can follow through on something that is hard for you to engage with on an everyday basis, but that you allow in this very intimate and special space. Like that's a very large trusting relationship. Like you have to, you have to truly know like in your heart that someone is not going to like at the last minute, let you down, you know, like you need to trust that they will always bring you back from this abandonment. And, you know, I like what you, you brought up with the um, people who want to be dominated. Like <laughs> Have a good relationship with God. Just because I do see this, like that practice more as um an exercise in that kind of like leaping leaping you know like into the abyss um I think that you let go of all the social norms that keep you in your your everyday safety zone and I think you have to make like concessions and you need to kind of like not say like I accept to die but like you need to say I accept this pain and To a certain extent, extent too, you need to have a certain detachment from the pain, too. Like, you can revel in the pain, and you can really take that somewhere. But also, I think that people who are doing it just to be hurt are looking for something else, and they're perhaps not BDSM enthusiasts. Perhaps they're just highly traumatized beings who found an outlet for expressing that trauma, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so like people who are, uh, constructively engaging in the, in a BDSM community value consent, um, conversation, um, and actually they just value the person in front of them. Like, I think you have to honor that this is a being. And I think that's also the fun in dominating, like understanding that this is a person who trusts you so deeply, who lets you touch them in this way that gives you this, this power, this moment. Like that's the, that's the rush there, you know, like having that ability to be in control and to, to take care of someone in a way that they can't express to others or perhaps others wouldn't understand. Yeah,
0: I I, I think <clears throat> uh, definitely that's a, I, I find that fascinating because um, some of that kind of challenges orthodox sort of like uh christian assumptions not orthodox christian as in like christian orthodox but like you know like like hegemonic assumptions about uh you know what sex is in in a lot of ways um i think like when we think about trusting the other person in that respect like we don't typically think of like okay i trust this person so much that i'm gonna let them like humiliate me or whatever or like I don't know what kind of, I'm sure there's all the different kinds of, of dominant <laughs> that, that exists. Um, I, I am probably very vanilla in this regard, but yeah, I think that is, that's an interesting challenge to a lot of, um, dominant assumptions. We recently had a guest on here who is a furry and they were talking about, uh, the pup community and like what they do. What is that again? So, they wear masks and they like carry them on, on leashes and public, like they're, they're, they're dogs.
1: like the leather masks or the free masks?
0: No, they're like leathery. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I've never heard of that in my life. Like, I wonder what else I haven't heard of. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, I thought it was fascinating to read about things like BDSM and Christianity because I didn't really know that those two ever crossed paths um i know caroline you are a very spiritual person um and i think you're one of the first people i encountered <laughs> who's very into uh mm. this kind of like into bdsm but also not a total heathen like me um so <laughs> i i'm wondering if you have anything to, um, or any thoughts on that, or do you find a sort of connection between <clears throat> your spiritual beliefs and practices and, say, a practice like BDSM?
2: Well, so I guess I should start this conversation just by saying I grew up Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very particular brand of Christianity that, um a bit more mystical, a bit more superstitious, a bit more... Um... <gasps> a bit more enthusiastic about crucifixion, Um, very enthusiastic about um, the suffering of the Virgin Mary. Um, But I think what I see as very helpful about that kind of line of thought is, is that sacrifice is a very beautiful thing to do spiritually. I think that one, to die and let yourself be reborn is a way of rejecting the images that we create for our ego, for our personality. I think that accepting that deaths happen in so many different ways. Like it happens every night you go to sleep. It happens in a social moment. Um, It happens when you take a step out of your house. Like there are so many ways that we make choices and you become a new person because of that choice. And I think that sacrifices, you sacrifice for that. You know, like there's a moment where you make a choice and you say, my body doesn't matter, but the person in front of me, their bodies, um, And it's not necessarily about one being better than the other. It's just about um, honoring the spark of life and always seeing beauty and joy and wanting to preserve it in every moment that you can, you know, like, and I think that's why sacrifice also comes in so many different um, paths, almost, you know, like, sacrifice doesn't have to be suffering. Sacrifice doesn't have to be um, painful, even. Um, And I think that that is, I think, the ultimate goal of, like, where you want to get with sacrifice. Like, I think that when you start being, like, when you start developing that sense of, um, can I put myself on the line for others? Like, can I put myself aside? Can I put my ego aside? Um, You have an ego reaction against it, and you don't want to do it, and it's hard, and you suffer. And I think it's kind of the same thing in BDSM. Like, you have an ego reaction to this, um, and you think, like, wow, like, someone is really, really, like fucking with me right now you know what I mean and you could get mad or you can get like upset about it um and that's a valid reaction because in an everyday circumstance someone doing that to you could perhaps be crossing the boundary of doing something bad to you um but like you grow in your understanding of suffering in the same way that you would grow in that in that understanding of suffering through sacrifice you know and I think that there comes a moment it's no longer painful and it really is sublime um and I think, too, that my particular relationship with God, um, is one of, wow, well, okay, my relationship with God is one of awe. I'm humbled by God. I think that everything around me that is beautiful and cruel, um, and mundane and completely unique is from that, that source, um, I am willing and ready to submit to that force. I don't feel that I'm above that source at the same time. I think that God put me on this earth to enjoy this experience, and in that way, I am part of God and I'm here to experience this for a reason um, but so for me, I'm willing to to kind of bow to that idea. I'm willing to be humble in that way and maybe that's the reason why I can reconcile these ideas a bit better. You know, like, I'm willing to put my ego aside. I'm willing to say, like, yes, I'm your servant. And I find actually a supreme, delicious joy in being the servant in the same way that I find a supreme, delicious joy in being the one who's being served. Like, I think that those are both beautiful sides of one coin.
0: Yeah, that's some powerful stuff. I'm like, yeah, I... This it's uh, I was thinking of you know the band Tool I'm sounding so ineloquent But it made me think it's Of like a Tool, Tool. S- It made me think of like a Tool song in the background Like the Crucify the Ego kind of stuff um, Which
1: song is that? Crucify the Ego yeah. <laughs> We are just one mind
0: Yeah No but that's like I feel like Tool is perfect Blind innocent you know? in a lot of ways you know when he's like shine on forever benevolent sun and I'm like
1: oh, oh man. I love like, that lyric
0: yeah that is a good lyric Um Caroline is there a type of music that you uh, think uh, BDSM practices or is there a music that you would recommend for for the mood
2: um no, I, I can't possibly speak to what the mood would be in every room. Um, That's true. And I know for me that the mood changes depending on, like, what kind of energy I'm even, like, mm-hmm. trying to access. Like, um, very often I engage in scenes as this other person, Bobby, who is a teenage boy and, like, loves to be dominated in the locker room, you know, and so like, that kind of scene has a very different energy than if I were being, um, like, kind of avoid creature wearing all leather like letting myself just be a demon like i'm going to be listening to obviously very different music but i think i am going to be or uh, i might not even be listening to music <laughs> i <could laughs> even be going somewhere else who knows um but you know you, you can't you can you can't possibly predict it and i think that's also what's cool about bdsm that even as much as you prepare a scene like things come out of you that you never expect you like kind of sit into this new being this new state and there's a totally new creation that's happening in that moment um anyway so I think it's also fun because it's very cool um and I love to act I love <laughs> Belle knows I have always warm like <laughs> so maybe that's part of the joy
0: yeah yeah definitely I think that's um that's that's something that it's not like openly talked about, but people like to sort of um, take on different personas sometimes it's like, would you say it's a form of escapism in a sense?
2: Um, I think some people use it as escapism. I think if I'm, if we're thinking about that idea of detachment of association of letting the body like free of the mind's um, limitations. Um, yeah, you're settling into something. I think other people really feel this as a moment to be themselves. Like I think some people really see this as like who they are, and I think that that's a really cool position to be in too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I. I. It makes me think. I think the the, uh, the first song that I ever um uh, <laughs> listen, I, I ever did the dirty to uh, was was Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. And I also thought that was kind of, like, like, I think that's a very, like, sexual song. And, like...
2: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. And, like, I, I think, like, I didn't really realize it. The t- and then my interpretation of the song kind of changed. like I think
1: Jordy did a version with, like, sl- like a chain sounds like, everywhere. Really? <laughs> yeah. so it ties into what you're saying.
0: Yeah. It's, like, maybe actually, like, kind of a sexual song. Um... But yeah, like, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's cool. I, I definitely, um, I think it's, it's fascinating to tie the sort of spiritual, uh, spiritual sort of component into this. I, one of the other things that I came across when looking up stuff about BDSM is, is 10 questions to ask a potential dom.
1: It's so funny to imagine you (laughs) Google BDSM stuff. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but I think it's so funny that there's questions like it's a job interview, right? So one of them oh is, God. what job Wait, do you do? So, Carolyn, are you like a
1: professional? or? No. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, somehow I got that in my mind. Okay.
2: They speak no, very um, eloquently. I just, I'm, I, I'm just incredibly creative Um, and live a very full life with a lot of chaos energy and many human beings. Nice. <laughs> so no, it's not a profession, it's just... <laughs> A joyful, it's a lifestyle. lifestyle. lifestyle.
0: (laughs) So, so when you are, say, like, do you, according to this blog, subs tend to interview people before Mm. uh, uh, doing this kind of thing. Uh, Have you encountered that at all? I find this very fascinating. It looks like a job interview.
2: Well, there's for sure a negotiation process that goes into this. Um, I think that if you're not negotiating, you're involved in a different level of the scene. um, And maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I think that if you're trying to create a relationship that's perhaps outside of the scene, uh, like more of a one-on-one thing, then yeah, there's a ton of negotiation that needs to happen. You kind of know, also, if you are subbing for someone, like, in some way, you're in power, right? Like, you have to be able to say yes. Um, and I think that a lot of subs, like, really, <laughs> I think a lot of subs, um, I think, yes, they are concerned about who's stopping them. Um, and I think that they will, well, you, you actually, maybe they will, no you have to um give your boundaries. I think that that's really the responsibility of someone who's going to sub too. Like if you go into a scene and you're not making it very clear that this one certain combo will severely trigger you and you become triggered in the scene, it's not your fault, but you do have a responsibility to like make this scene safe for you and your partner, you know, like so you need to know your limits, you need to know your boundaries, um so you're gonna know what you're, you're gonna try to ask questions about what your top is into, but you're gonna make it very clear, like what you're into, and you're gonna make sure that your top is down for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, one of our
0: previous guests made a very uh, fascinating point, which was, um, you know, now when we talk, we've been talking a lot more about consent in today's culture. Um, and when we talk about it, some ways that people get mad about consent discourses they say oh so now we have to make the the two parties sign a, a form saying that they consented to sex uh before actually having it to make sure that
2: so dramatic oh my god yeah. get over yourselves
0: <laughs> So but i think lot, i mean when when we when i when you and i we both uh, facilitated those consent workshops I think there was a concern about that and people saying, okay, this is going to disrupt the flow of sex if you're not, like this idea of affirmative consent. Whereas I think, you know, the, the BDSM community, they're so much more explicit about consent mm say a regular sexual interaction yes seems like if you're just having an ordinary sexual interaction it is awkward to be like and maybe it shouldn't be awkward maybe i'm just super awkward but it does seem awkward to just be like okay so what are you okay with i'm okay with this it usually just happens whereas like in this process that you know you're describing here it seems like you know you're really laying out the ground rules you're really saying you know this is okay this isn't okay and and
2: so well perhaps it doesn't look as serious as it sounds perhaps it can be like a more casual conversation i think that often to these people know what kind of energy they're looking for and you can kind of feel it in the person when they're in front of you and you can kind of feel what they're about um, mm-hmm. and i think that often like a couple of well-placed questions with language that's meant to be understood by people who can understand it um can go a long way like i don't think this has to be like a an arduous like contract right. situation <laughs> and i think too like in the in the um the everyday encounter that you're describing between like you know average people who are having you know a new encounter like how it could be awkward like yeah it could be awkward but at the same time like what if you just made it like and I don't want to sound corny like remember how when we did those consent workshops would be like consent is sexy like yeah like (laughs) that sounds corny as fuck but like on the real like on the real though like you can make like talking about these things hot like and why not push yourself to do that? Like, if this is something that you want to engage in and you actually do care about this level of negotiating, negotiation, you really do care about this level of consent, fucking do the work, make it hot, like, try. Like, why are you put off by trying, you know? Like, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I could totally see. I mean, that's, that's, I, I've literally seen people say, or, like, or draw up contracts and be like, I don't want to be accused of misconduct, so... Okay, gonna...
2: that's insecurity. That's clearly some, some dude insecurity. That's wild. That's but... ridiculous. You think that the line is so thin for you that you need to make that contract. Like, bro, that, there's a whole other problem happening. Well, what
0: makes me curious about stuff like that is like what kind of sex are you having where yeah what are like, you trying to do where you're like not sure and I mean I don't know because I think <laughs> sometimes maybe people are gen- genuinely that oblivious as to whether or not their are like partners enjoying what they're doing um but that might reveal kind yeah. of a larger issue oh, at yeah, hand. That's,
2: that's a problem with you you shouldn't be having sex with people if you can't hear what your partner is saying. Like, that's clearly not sex. That's like masturbation. And just go do that on your own. <laughs> don't don't waste people's time. <laughs> sex yeah, and It's it's a give and take. Yeah. If you're just taking, please.
0: hmm I I've actually I had a conversation with my psychologist about those ones. Um, and I was saying, like, yeah, I think this guy that I was with, like, he just didn't get that like when I wasn't into things and stuff but like that's not his fault he might just be like not socially uh, in tune and she was kind of like well then if you're not that in tune with someone then you shouldn't be having sex but Ken and I were talking about before like there are some people who genuinely do have a social like I don't know the the way to say like they have a like autistic people Sure. Yeah. Or like just people who are socially awkward and might not be as good as at reading people. Um, and might or just might not be neurotypical in some respect. So then it's like, how do we, uh, you know, incorporate them into this discourse of, you know, consent and stuff like that?
2: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer to that question. Um, because it's true that they're, are many different ways of interpreting um, mm-hmm. any given social situation. And even um, like you just you mentioned, that made me think about how uh, if you're in a, a heightened state of, um, like for example, if your nervous system is aroused, like you're going to read things very differently. Like if you're triggered, you're going to read um, what someone's saying to you as offensive because, or you're going to be waiting to defend yourself because you're actively already triggered. And that's just actually psychological. Like, that's not like you're being petty. Like, this is just a nervous system. Like, you have a lot of hormones running through your body. Like, yes, you are going to perceive things differently. And so I wonder then, like, yeah, if there are people who kind of just operate on this um, level, because there are people who have just a different kind of perception of the world on the everyday basis because of a history of trauma. But maybe this is getting complicated now. I'm just thinking about how people see things differently in a given moment and it's maybe not even fair to have the conversation about (laughs) communicating right or well. Yeah, and I guess... Thank you, Mila. (laughs) (laughs) Can you excuse me? No, no,
0: I I think, you know, I guess one argument you could make is this kind of inability to read situations is not just a problem for sex, but just a problem for everything. Um, And, you know, there are ways that we can poorly treat people that are not sexual in nature. Um, So I guess you could argue that, that it's not, but then, I mean, another, on the other side, people might argue that, Uh, sexual relationships are like uniquely uh, their own thing and like having a sort of intuition about that is its own thing as well. I genuinely don't know but I do find this concept of like say a pre-interview to be kind of interesting. One of the the questions is about uh, or one of the points this person makes is that it's good to find out what someone does for a job before, uh, before (laughs) letting them dom, uh, have you ever, have you ever had someone,
1: (laughs) are there like jobs to avoid being domed by?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I, what do you think, Caroline?
2: Well, I think once again, we need to be asking ourselves why a dom is doing this. Like, I think everybody just needs to ask themselves why they're doing this in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But perhaps the type of job someone chooses would show um, how power-hungry they are, or perhaps what kind of relationship they have to power in their everyday life. For example, um, I mean, and I'm saying this kind of just hypothetically thinking about it, but like someone who is really like used to getting everything they want in an everyday space, if they then are also a dom, What is that thing for them if it's not some type of subversion from their everyday movement, you know, like, is it just now that you're moving this domination to the sexual space where, yes, this is another object that you touch that you affect, like, and then as the sub, do you want to be that object? Like, do you want to be just the movable thing? Or, you know, I, then I think in the same kind of idea, if this is someone in the same type of job that I'm describing, but wants to be a sub, I can kind of understand, like, what the, the subversion is there. You know, I can, I can tell, like, what you're getting out of this that is different from your everyday life. Um, but then again, should I be, like, psychoanalyzing all my partners? Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I, I don't know maybe they should just tell me that themselves yeah And I say that like full disclosure I was recently broken up with for that exact reason so my
0: god Aww. here I am for psychoanalysis
2: <laughs> yeah oh. I had a partner well it, to be fair with someone who I wasn't really like very seriously dating but like mm-hmm. before this all started it was a very casual relationship and in the pandemic, at one point, I was like, "Like, I really want to know how you're feeling. Like, can you just describe to me how you're feeling?" And this person got overwhelmed by me asking, like, to really push for it. And I was psychoanalyzing too much, which I understand. But isn't it also... kind of inevitable,
1: though? Like, I can, I can relate to wanting to understand someone. And uh, yeah, isn't that kind of inevitable? I guess you just gotta like pick your.
2: I truly think so. Yeah, I. What
0: when you're saying about how like how, you know, it's weird when they don't, they're not subverting their sort of regular life. And I, you know, I think the most, unfortunately, the most exposure people have gotten to like BDSM is through Fifty Shades of Grey. Like even my mom read that book. And, and, you know, the, one of the shifty sort of premises is, you know, the guy who's the dom is already like a really powerful guy. And so, like, the whole thing is, like, he's already just, like, this, like, whatever, some financial dickhead. And then he's all, he, you know, then he just wants to just keep doing the same thing in the bedroom. And I think, I, from what I've read, the BDSM community has been very critical of this work. They think it does not accurately depict uh, the way that things are. So, so... Yeah, I don't know what you thought of that. I don't know if you've read it, but it 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 definitely did not. I haven't
2: read it myself.
0: Yeah, it definitely didn't give me a good impression. And then I was kind of like, hmm. But then I I had met other people who practice BDSM, and they were like, no, this is not representative. Interestingly, it's a fan. It was <laughs> in, initially a fan fiction of Twilight. Um. <laughs> Oh my god, I opened the can of worms. Which is I'm gonna open it. So Karen, you you wrote an essay on on Twilight and BDSM. Which, my most famous piece, my god. Which is iconic. Um I think we've we've all read Twilight. can Twilight. Oh yeah, it's a banger. It's a <laughs> so, so yeah, so you wrote this essay on Twilight and BDSM, which uh which I think it's fascinating that that Twilight was taken by someone else and they wrote a really like shoddy fan fiction of it as BDSM. But uh, do you want to discuss what your sort of central thesis was here?
2: Um, I have to admit it's been years since I wrote this paper and probably actually Belle recalls it better than me. Um, (laughs) But uh, just that there was... Like, I think that there was a lot of criticism about, um, like, Bella's position in this relationship, okay, okay, I'm going there, um, <laughs> I, let me just say I love Twilight, let me just, say, that. <laughs> I think there a lot of controversy about her position as one who would accept a type of domination and, like, what her role was as, like, his object, like, his, um, sweet little lamb, you know, this whole thing. <laughs> Um, and I think also the, the narrative is complicated by the the fact that, like, as a vampire-human dynamic, she can also be food. Um, mm, but I very, was talking very... about, um, no, no, Ken, please.
1: I almost want to say very Eucharistic, almost. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, Ken, I have to say, I'm really, you know, I was waiting to hear a bit more from you because this is the first time we've we've met but um i have heard so much about your christianity um going on uh
1: uh no i'm not certain very much these days least of all least of all my my religion so go on with um i want to hear what your paper
2: okay um just her role as a sub um what that negotiation looked like and how there's actually some pointers we could take from the relationship in the book even if a lot of it was questionable and I think that also Stephanie Myers is an author, like a young adult Christian author, had her own motives in this. Um, and I find it also interesting how she herself even couldn't escape like the healthy BDSM dynamics um, that could be shown in this this one medium. Um, but yes, she was in control. Like in this situation, the sub was the one who was always the not priority, but um, her life, her continued life was always like the the main highlight of his love for her. Um, And although there was this masochistic element for him in denying himself, which was another um, element I explored, um, he really had to enter into this relationship fully aware that there were things that were going to conflict with his way of life, with his way of seeing, um, and the same thing for her, uh, and a very real negotiation had to be made. Um, and in the end, um, the negotiation had to change too, which I thought was a really uh, important thing to highlight about that, like perhaps like BDSM-esque relationship, um, that the relationship can be fluid, that it can take different forms, um, and that it serves different purposes at different moments. Like at the beginning of the book, Edward Cullen, is a very tortured man, and he has done a lot of bad things that he doesn't necessarily um, like about himself, and he is very conflicted about his position and, you know, his uh, idea of being essentially a bad thing. Um, And so engaging with this kind of torture dynamic with her served a different purpose, because he was kind of keeping her as this prize that he would use to torture himself. But in the end, um, shifting this dynamic to then be her, like dotee, he was, he adored her, and he, um, really exalted her in a way um you see that these things respond to your where you are psychologically and you see that um this isn't a static role it doesn't look one single way Um, and i think that also like bdsm doesn't have to be hitting someone in a basement you know like bdsm can be very subtle dynamics in a relationship every day like for example, having a certain type of language when someone is cooking for you in the kitchen can be very BDSM oriented, like someone um, who is perhaps cleaning your floor in a moment, a whole relationship can take on a whole narrative, you know, like, there are ways that this can exist, and you can play out these dynamics, Um without hurting yourself. Um, and I think too that freeing yourself from the inevitability of the dynamic because it's not inevitable. Like you choose it, you play with it, it's yours to manipulate. Um, knowing that it's that and knowing that it's always a game frees you in so many ways. Like knowing that you aren't a victim or feeling in your bones that you aren't a victim in this moment. Like that's a very, like that's a way to work through some serious, um, like perhaps programmed thoughts, you know? like. I think I've just, I've, I've diverted back to talking about BDSM, but this did start talking about Twilight.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's really cool. I, I, I you know, I recently uh, rewatched watched the TV show Hannibal uh, with my cousin, and I see a lot of what you're talking about in it, um, and there were, like, one of the plots was, like, there were these two different cannibals, so, like, there's Hannibal, obviously, and then Like, the scenes that he's uh, cooking and stuff and, like, serving the meat. Like, he's kind of doming Mm -hmm. the main character, so (sighs) to speak, and, like, serving the human meat to him uh, without him... Like, it was very... I wouldn't say it's like healthy. It's a, it's very abusive. Dynamic. Yeah, but,
2: of course, there's but, a consent situation happening there too. Mm-hmm. Eating human meat, but yeah, continue. but
0: they they made it very sexual. Like they made the dynamic very sexual, and and then there was another cannibal in the show who like he would make it like a ritual with his daughter where he would like kill the, the girl but like honor her while he was killing her and and like harvesting the meat. And I was like, like talk about Twilight I'm like damn like how, much, how many other pieces of media do we see this kind of thing bleed out into like is this just in the back of like our human uh, minds where we're just kind of like everyone's so kind of fascinated with this you know even if we don't practice it. Like I've had reservations in the past. Um, but you know, you still see you still see this kind of uh thing where people just keep coming back to it and, and thinking about it. It's in everybody's mind all the time.
2: Are you talking about cannibalism?
0: No, no, BDSM, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I'm
2: talking I... about cannibalism. But like if you're talking about BDSM, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: um yeah i don't think about eating people uh um but i just i i don't know i the the show the television show handle it's very different from the movies and the aesthetic is completely different as well so the aesthetic is it's kind of like this gothic sort of like i don't know i think it's really brilliant and they use um like the the music is really uh it's, like, dark but, but beautiful. It's, like, it crosses with, like, classical music and all kinds of stuff. Um, anyway, that, all that to say, I think, like, like that's what I was thinking of. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Then then I'm, like, what other media would have this? It seems to just be a running theme. Too bad we, Foucault is not alive to be interviewed on this subject.
2: Well, you, you do see it, too, bleeding into fashion a lot. Um, yeah it the, is like turning chokers, the public imagination a lot more chokers yeah. have
0: become in fashion again Um, and,
2: and people are wearing more leather and people are wearing harnesses more freely um, people wear more chain mm-hmm. yeah it makes
0: me think of that Arrested Development scene where Tobias is like uh, in all leather <laughs> and he's like and I'm thinking of something that says leather daddy or dad likes leather <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> the guy's like leather daddy. Um and yeah, no, that's definitely definitely something that's like, I don't know, it's in the back of people's minds. So I'm I'm glad that we we discussed it on the show because I think it's it's something that comes up, it's something that people think about. Um, it's not often discussed uh openly and candidly among people who aren't into it I think it's discussed openly among people who practice it Um, but like you're saying I think some people are are hesitant about it uh, in activist circles because you know you want it you don't want to make the spaces seem like unfriendly or unwelcome to people who might experience trauma or whatever I have heard of instances where people who experience trauma actually find solace in BDSM as well so,
2: yes, you hear that a lot
0: hmm so that's that's another interesting avenue that i I've thought a lot about this. One thing that had admittedly concerned me before was that uh in a, a court case in Canada a couple years back, the Gian gameshi case, one of the things that got him off the hook for punching this woman in the head was um that they said he was practicing PDSM. so I was like kind of like oh my god what kind of precedence that's, are these setting um I, I'm wondering what that's irresponsible
2: that. lawyering <laughs> yeah that could very that's much really irresponsible on the part of the lawyer yeah yeah so i create a whole stigma just to protect some fucking rapist chill
0: <laughs> I think that's unfortunately something many lawyers are willing to do um chasing
2: that dollar
0: yeah yeah but but I think that had concerned me in the past I was kind of like okay what what kind of if this is gonna be a permissible excuse then what are we gonna do
2: well I think that anytime like we bring legislation to a conversation about sexuality it's very complicated like even the mm. Me Too movement kind of grasping onto incarceration as like the solution to all their problems is very complicated. Yeah. Um, so you can see it on both sides. Uh, I think that it is really disappointing um, the way that people take information in these days. I think people will see something like that says, oh, this man, um, this man was practicing BDSM and he hit a woman that ahead and um and he's a murderer and now when you think that he is part of this whole class of people who's perverted in this way and what a disgusting sick mind and blah blah like to to just read that and be like one plus you know like one plus one equals um uh, unethical monstrous torture play uh, um is kind of like a jump um but also like unfair like be more critical like I just want, like, when I say this guy was irresponsible luring, that's me being critical of this moment, you know, like, you hear someone say, like, oh, he was doing it as, like, a BDSM practice, like, be critical, like, why wouldn't you ask yourself, was, like, is that what BDSM is, like, ask yourself that question, like, do the research, like, don't accept things at such an easy, simple, like, reductionist level, it's just so disappointing.
0: Yeah, yeah. You no, know, yeah, I just I thought that that would be a good sort of um, you know, problem to sort of deal with uh head on. Um I think we are almost out of time. Uh thanks for coming on. Uh nice to
1: meet you. Mm-hmm. Uh no, what have you heard about me?
2: <laughs> <laughs> just that you're Mila's Christian friend who like lived in a basement without a phone. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I, yeah, I just, I find that fascinating, obviously, like, because I experience I think Christianity in a very uh, particular way, and I just, I love hearing other people who are my age who also, like, have some type of relationship with it, like, and I also love when people have, like, alternative, strange relationships to it, like, I just like hearing about those things, and yeah, so, yeah, when, when Mila mentioned having a friend who was into that, I was curious.
1: <laughs> Mine's pretty much failing
0: maybe so caroline hope. can resurrect it for you yeah that'd be good
2: well there's no such thing as a failed faith
1: that's a good
2: thought. faith comes it's not linear it's damn
1: what a but way to you end the up yeah yeah that was great
0: all right thank you so much caroline uh always a pleasure and i'm sure we'll we'll chat soon and uh have a good rest of the week everyone thanks for listening
2: Thank you.